What a privilege uh, to be here with you today. It's so good uh, to be here, and uh, thank you for, for tuning in. Let's start with a word of prayer. Lord, all of this is for you. Every single uh, heartbeat, every word, every song, every part of this message, Lord, may it truly be for the praise of your glory. We ask you to use this, Lord. Use this time. Speak to our hearts. Lord, let your word and your spirit minister to us and show us exactly what you want us to know as we uh, follow you and love you more. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you see that I got promoted today because I have the cool microphone, and so I'm excited about that. And I have figured out the on-off switch now, which if, now, if you hear me singing later, then you know that I did not figure out the on or off switch. So and then you can text Douglas and say, hey, Joel's singing again. Tell him to turn that off. But it's, uh, it's great to be here. Well, today, uh, the title of our message is All Your Questions Answered in Romans chapter 8. That's right, all your questions. But there's a fine print. You can't see it there, but there's a fine print that says the questions asked by those who are followers of Christ and are serious about growing in Christ and actually, um, what we'll do is we'll focus on, on certain questions, the big questions, the, the, the main questions in life, and we're going to get all of our answers here in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 is the greatest chapter in the Bible. So here we go. Get your Bibles out, please. Um, open, open them up or let, turn your phone on there and leave it there because we're going to be in Romans 8, our whole message here. Ravi Zacharias uh, is a well-known Christian apologist. And he says that there are four big questions in life. And I'm going to kind of tweak his questions a little bit, but basically these are, these are from him. And he talks about the first big question in life being about origin, or I think we could also say identity. In other words, where do I come from and who am I? He says the second big question in life is meaning. What is life ultimately about? The third big question in life is morality. How do I know right and wrong? And the fourth big question in life is about destiny. Where am I headed? So let's find all of the answers to all of this in the greatest chapter in the Bible, Romans chapter 8. Well, the first question is, who am I? And we're going to begin here where we left off last week with Romans 8.1. And Romans 8.1 says, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That has to do with justification. And what that means is, is that the Almighty God, Creator God, perfect, righteous judge, has looked at you, sinful you, and because of Christ, declared you righteous or innocent. And that's something we should never get over. Now, I've heard people explain the word justify with the phrase, it's just as if I never sinned. And I think that that is a terrible way of understanding. And I'm going to tell you why I think that's terrible, okay? Let's just say that someone came up to my brand new car with a huge sledgehammer and just started smashing it. And they smashed it to pieces. And then they were done and said, I am so sorry. I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. But I have no money. I've got nothing to pay you with. Please forgive me. So being a good Christian, of course, I'll say, sure. It'd take me a little while, right? But I get around to it. I, I, I forgive you, but I'm going to have to pay the price to get that car fixed right? I take it to the shop, and I pay lots of money, and I get it fixed, and it comes back. You got to picture this. It's perfect. Not my Honda Fit, okay? Some really cool car, all right? It's there, and, it's, and it looks beautiful, and it's polished, and it's waxed, and the guy comes up and says, wow, look at that. It's just as if I never smashed it. 
Well, yeah, but you did smash it, and someone paid a huge price to get it fixed. So I think that's the point of justification. Someone paid a big price to, to make us right with God. And that is what we're going to focus on today as we talk about who am I? Who are we? You've got to understand that your, who God has declared you to be, your justification has everything to do with what he's called you to do, that is your sanctification. In other words, what God has declared to be true about you has everything to do with the plans that he has for you. Once we take hold of that truth, once we apply that to our lives, what God has said about me is true, that's going to change the way that we live. I want you to picture this for a minute. I got a chance to see this somewhat recently, but they were choosing the players of the Brazilian national team, the Seleção. Now picture this. There was the player. He's a very good player, and he's there with his family and his friends, and the coach was calling out the names of the players to be chosen to be on the national team. And so he reads through the list, and all of a sudden, that player's name shows up. And so he has been chosen to be on, the, let's just be honest here, the greatest soccer team in the world. And, and so he's been chosen, and, and he will now wear that shirt, and he'll be a part of that team, and he's going to go to the practices. The coach says, I believe in you, and I've chosen you. You're going to be a part of this amazing team. Now, here's my question. Will that change his life? Will that change the way that he acts, the way that he sees himself, the way that he carries himself? Maybe the way that he talks, certainly the way that he practices, certainly the way that he goes out in the next game. Oh yeah, it's going to change him forever because he's been chosen, because the coach declared something about him. It's the same thing for us. At Calvary, we refer a lot to preaching the gospel to yourself, and that's what that means. Preaching the gospel to yourself is when you take what God has said about you and you apply that to your own life. You say, yes, I have been chosen. I have been adopted. My position in Christ is completely and forever guaranteed. And that changes the way that we live. It changes the way that we think. And yes, it's a process. Yes, two step forward, one step back. Yes, that's right. But we're heading in that direction. You see, religion puts it this way. Religion says, you Try hard to do the right things, and then you'll be accepted. So religion, in religion, we keep trying and trying, and, and we never quite know if we're there or not, but we keep trying harder and harder to do all those right things. But in Christianity, it says you are accepted. And that's why we respond in the way that we do. That's why in God's strength and in his spirit, we respond by pleasing him. To illustrate this, I had a dream last night. And uh, LeBron James was going to have someone who was going to inherit his fortune. Now, if you are sick of all the, the sports analogies, okay, in your mind, switch it to something else, okay? It could be uh, uh, cooking or, or, or fashion. I don't know, okay? But, uh, you know, we're going we're to stick to sports here. So LeBron James is going to choose someone to inherit all of his millions of dollars, all of his houses, all of his cars, and his basketball skill, too. He's found a way to, to pass it on to his, to his heir, to, to this person that, that he's going to adopt. And he found me. This was a really cool dream I had. And, and he found me. And he says, I declare you, Joel Rast, uh, to be the next LeBron Joel or, or LeJoel James. And, and he says, I'm going to give you right now all of my money, all my cars, all my houses, and all my ability. But there's actually a plan B we could talk about. Plan B is that I'm going to sign this lawyer here, Mr. Peabody, and he's going to follow you around for the rest of your life. And he's going to see how good you do and how well you do in basketball. And, and Joel, I've, I've seen you play basketball. 
And, and, and he's going to see how good you do with money. And he's going to kind of be, be looking at that. And, and then once you prove to him that you're pretty good, then we'll give you uh, what you've inherited. Um, now, I could say, you know what, uh, LeBron, I, I appreciate that. And I, I kind of like plan B. I'm pretty good at basketball. You know, I've, I've scored a few baskets and I can make a layup sometimes. And, and I'm pretty good with money. I saved up a couple hundred bucks. And, and the idea of Mr. Peabody following me around for the rest of my life, no, no, no one would ever choose that, right? No one will ever choose that. We say, LeBron, yes, right now. I'll take all your money right now. I'll take all your skill right now. Okay, and that's what God has done for us in Christ. He has declared us righteous, adopted, his child right now. Not later when we somehow prove to ourselves or to others that we've got everything together. So that's what Romans 8, 1 says. You have been chosen. God has declared you righteous. He has justified you. You are a child of God. So when we start living this Christian life, I think that's key. Who are we? You're chosen by God. If you are in Christ, if you put your faith in him, we're not trying to prove something to ourselves or to others. Let's go to question two, morality. How do I know what is right or wrong? And I think an even harder question for us as Christians is, how do we do what is right? We might know what is right, but how do we keep doing that? If I had to be honest, if I could look back at my years as a Christian, I would say one of the main words that comes to my mind is failure. If you have your Bible, and I hope that you have, you have it open right there in um, Romans 8, chapter 1, let's read together, uh, or actually I'll read it, you just listen. Uh, Romans 8, uh, chapter 1. It says, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus the law of the Spirit of life has set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, and that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the spirit. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. The sinful man is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. You, however, are not controlled by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit. If the Spirit of God lives in you, and if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. So, morality. <laughs> How do we do what God wants us to do? I think we're pretty clear on what right or wrong is. Wrong is that spirit of, of death, the spirit of the sinful nature, that sinful flesh. The Bible calls it our flesh or our sinful nature. And what's right is God's law and his spirit and what is pleasing to him. But I think the bigger, the bigger question is how? How do we do that? How do we, how do we live that out? If you look back at what I just read there in Romans chapter 8, you'll see several key things pop out at us. It says in 8.2, the spirit of life set me free. It says in 8.4, we live according to the spirit. In 8.5, we set our minds on what the spirit desires. In 8.6, the mind controlled by the spirit. 
is life and peace. In 8.9, all those who belong to Christ have the Spirit of Christ. Uh-oh, the Holy Spirit, okay? I grew up Baptist. We don't smoke and we don't chew. We don't go with girls that do. And we don't like talking about the Holy Spirit. That makes us break into a cold sweat. Oh, no, the Holy Spirit. What's going to happen now? What's, is something weird going to happen here? We're going to be full of the Holy Spirit. And, you know, I think one preacher put it this way. He said, most Christians, or a lot of Christians, relate to the Holy Spirit kind of like they relate to their pituitary gland. We have one. We know it's in there somewhere, but we're not really sure what it does. But you see, what the Holy Spirit does or does not do, I know it's one of the most controversial things I could talk about this morning, but let's just focus on what Romans 8 says. We're going to find our answers here in Romans 8. So what does Romans 8 say about the Scripture? Um, Romans 8 and the rest of the Bible teaches us that the Holy Spirit gives us the desire, the determination, and the discipline to reject evil and to live a life that is a pursuit of holiness that God is calling us to. What the Spirit describes here in Romans 8, it's not about warm and fuzzy feelings. It's about living a life of freedom. That's something we all want, freedom. As Christ followers, His Spirit directs us, encourages us, motivates us. In fact, it is impossible to grow as a Christian. It's impossible to be the disciple that God has called you to be without the work of the Spirit in your life. I know there's a lot of controversy about what the Spirit does and, and doesn't do, um, and we're not going to sit and argue about it. Again, we're going to focus on what God's Word says clearly here in Romans 8. I would divide up the way the Holy Spirit works and some of that controversy in, in three main ways. Green light, red light, and yellow light. Green light, but when the Holy Spirit speaks and it's according to God's Word, that's a completely green light. Go in that direction. When the Holy Spirit wants you to be holy and to forgive and to love others, and anything that goes right along with God's word, that's a green light. We, we can go that way with a, with a full conscience. Red light. Anything that you think the Holy Spirit is saying to you that goes against God's word. The Holy Spirit will never contradict the word of God. So if you hear something and you think, I, I think God's telling me to steal something or do something wrong, you already know that's not the Spirit. The yellow light. This is the controversial area. There are things that are not mentioned in the Bible, but people sense the Holy Spirit leading them to do. Where to live and what to wear and who to date. All these really important things in life. And I would just encourage all of us to keep the main thing the main thing. Let's make sure that most of all, when people think about us and when they think of the Holy Spirit, they remember that he's calling us to holiness, to discipleship, to sanctification. Just a few basic principles on, on how the Holy Spirit works. The Holy Spirit always works with the Word of God. An example is seen in Acts 4.31. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the Word of God with boldness. Another key verse for understanding the Holy Spirit is John 14.26, which says, Jesus said, But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. The work of the Holy Spirit reminds us of what Jesus has said and Jesus' life, and his death. So again, the idea of preaching the gospel to yourself, and through the Spirit, you can bring to mind everything that Jesus has done and what that means for you. Remember, the Holy Spirit is not a try-harder program or a, a self-help type of book. The Holy Spirit is his God Spirit himself in you. You're always going to have your personality. That's not going to change, but you can submit that personality to him. 
And finally, the Holy Spirit's goal is holiness. It's acting like Jesus, not growing a beard or walking around in sandals, but it's a life full of grace and truth, full of love for others and God, a life that's full of obedience and dependence on God. If you look at Romans 8.29, peek over there for a second, that's his goal for you. His goal is to conform you to the image of his son. Now, we are focusing on Romans chapter 8. So here we go. When you look at Romans chapter 8, what are some things that we see about how the Holy Spirit does this in our life? How do we grow as Christians? How do we live a life um, not characterized by failure? It's because of the Spirit. And what Paul writes here, he says, it's not this, but it is this. In other words, he says in verses 4 and 5, it's not living according to the flesh or the sinful nature. It's not a mind governed by the flesh, the sinful nature. Now, by the way, what is the flesh? What is the sinful nature? That is the selfish you, the unforgiving you, the uh, covetous you and me. So it's not that, but it's a life led by the Spirit. In 8.15, Paul writes, it's not fear, but freedom. It's not a slave, but an adopted son and a real heir of God. So again, a life guided by the, by the Spirit, and don't let that weird you out if you're Baptist. It means a life shaped around pleasing God and following God's word. Now you might be thinking, oh, a life full of the Spirit. I can picture myself on a mountaintop and a cool breeze caressing my faith. That's what life of the Spirit is. But then in verse 13, Paul writes some very strong words. And he says, put to death the misdeeds of the body. So rather than staring off into the sunset, it sounds more like a UFC-style fight to the death. You are going to put to death the deeds of the body, your sinful nature. You see, your sinful nature wants to kill you. It is warring against your soul, Scripture says. So either you kill it or it kills you. So if you think that being a Christian is going to be easy, it's not easy. Fighting your sin, fighting your sinful nature is a battle that will last your entire life. If you're breathing, you'll fight your sinful nature. But God declares that we're justified. Now you might say, well, okay, I'm justified, so then therefore my sin doesn't matter. Oh, yes, it does matter. It matters very much. And that's why Paul wrote about putting to death the misdeeds of the body. Paul knew that the mind governed by your sinful nature is death. For those that are not in Christ, their sin controls them. They're a slave to sin. And their sin will lead them to death, eternal death. But for those that have put their faith in Christ, sin is not what defines you. God defines you as his righteous child. And he says your sin must be dealt with ruthlessly. Now, when you hear this, I know what you're thinking. You know, oh, okay, I got it, got it. Deal with my sin ruthlessly. So tomorrow, I'm going to get up and I'm going to try hard and I'm just going to be nice this time and I'm going to... No, it says by the Spirit, by the Spirit. The Spirit motivates us. And as you understand more and more of what God has already declared about you to be true, that's what allows the Spirit to work in you to kill sin. I believe that Paul uses the word kill sin rather than to, um, rather than to deal with sin. Okay, we should kill sin, not deal with it. Because I think dealing with sin is often what we say when we kind of just put the sin right over here to the side for a little bit. We take our sin and kind of put it under our bed. We can reach back there and put it right back out whenever we want to. No, the Bible talks about the amputation of sin. It's not a peaceful, easy feeling. No, the Bible says kill your sin, and that takes action. It's kind of like having a tutor train you for a big test. The tutor comes along, and he shows up, and he, and he, and he gets you to, to study but you've got to be, get your books out. You've got to be taking notes. Now, hopefully right now you're convinced, I need the Spirit. I can't do this on my own. How do you get the Spirit? 
Well, look at Romans 8, 9. It says, if you are in Christ, you already have him. If anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. All Christians have the spirit of Christ working in them. And let me just tell you something really important that I hope you're paying attention right now. If your sin bothers you, that's a good sign. That's a very good sign. If your sin bothers you, that is a one sign that you are in Christ and the Spirit is at work in your life. However, if you're loving your sin and enjoying your sin and, and actually quite proud of your, of your sin, if you defend it right and left, be careful, be careful. That sounds a lot like a mind controlled by the sinful flesh, not the Spirit. Let's go on to our next question. We're going to deal with both destiny and meaning. In other words, where am I going and does life ultimately have any meaning? Look over at Romans 8.21. Romans 8.21 says that where we are headed is the glorious freedom of the children of God. This freedom that God has prepared for us is so amazing, so beyond what we can even picture right now, that Paul also says our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. And there it is again. Paul seems to always be connecting glory with suffering. In 8.17 he says this, now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. Now, that's strange. That's strange for us. Talking about glory, talking about something perfect and beyond perfect bond, what we can even imagine, and then to connect that to suffering. But this is actually an amazing verse because you have to picture this. Someday, not in this life, in the next life, God will hand out the universe. He will hand out everything. That's what it means. We are his heirs. We inherit what God has. So can you picture this in your mind? You there in a crowd along with Christ and God is handing out everything. You will inherit it all. But according to verse 17, if we share in his sufferings. And I think that's a fair question to ask. Why? Why do we have to suffer? If God is good and he's sovereign, why does he allow the world to be so bad? Romans 8 answers it this way. The whole creation is groaning. Our world is groaning. Paul also writes, creation is subjected to frustration. And he also says, it's in bondage to decay. Decay, frustration, groaning. Would you agree that's where our world is right now? Our world is broken. Right now, people are dying. People are in ICU fighting for their life. People are going hungry. Marriages are coming apart. People live in slavery. We're facing a pandemic. In example after example, we can see how broken our world is. And why is it broken? It's broken because of my sin and yours. Our rebellion against God has made the world the way that it is. And I think a question that we would all ask at this time is, but does, does God care? Does he see our hurt? Does he, does he even care about how broken our world is? And why does he keep silent when millions and millions around the globe are suffering and weeping? Brothers and sisters, Romans 8 shows very clearly that God is not silent. He cares. He cares very much. Look carefully at verse 26. Look there. It says, The Spirit himself intercedes with us with groans that words cannot express. He's not silent. He knows your suffering. He knows what you're going through. And the Spirit is so concerned 
that he intercedes for you with groans. I recently read something by Tim Keller that again supports this idea of God's tender care for us and his frustration over how broken our world is. Remember the story of when Jesus brought Lazarus back to life? You know the famous verse in the Bible, Jesus wept? Well, a few verses later, in John eleven thirty eight, 38, it says that Jesus was deeply moved as he went up to the tomb. And theologians believe that more than sadness at that point, Jesus actually felt deep anger. Why would Jesus be angry? He's about to bring Lazarus back to life. Well, maybe he looked over and he saw Mary and Martha weeping. And maybe he understood how much that pain had caused them to lose their brother. And their family had, pay, had faced a painful loss. And Jesus felt their pain. And he, maybe he felt a righteous anger against what pain and loss and suffering have done to his chosen ones. And I think he was furious with sickness and death. And as he went up to that tomb, he said, Satan, I've had it with you. I've had it. I'm sick of this sickness and the death and the suffering. And I can't wait to redeem this world. I will get rid of sickness and death forever. So when the Spirit groans on our behalf, you can remember, God's not silent. He cares. He cares very much. And that connection between suffering in this life and glory in the next. Romans 8 says, it will be worth it all. It will be worth it all. One day, brother and sister in Christ, one day there will be no more suffering, no more cancer, no more death, no more tears, no more goodbyes, no more Alzheimer's, no more brokenness. One day, God will redeem it all. Now you're thinking, yeah, that, that sounds nice, that sounds good, but I can't see it. I can't see any of it, and I can't feel it at all. I know, I know. And that's why Romans 8, 24 and 25's answer says, that's what hope is. Hope is. Hope is when you're looking for something that's not right in front of you. If you can see it, it's not hope yet. And Romans 8, 25 says, don't give up. Don't give up your hope. It's coming. God says, I know it's hard. I know you're hurting. I know. But you hang in there with patience, Paul writes. In Romans 8.22, it describes it as the pains of childbirth. You all, this is not a coincidence. The pain, he describes it as the pains of childbirth. It's not a coincidence that the greatest pain in life would lead to the greatest joy in life. So Paul is saying that as you walk down that road of suffering, the Lord is with you. You've never been alone. Now you keep going. You keep the faith. You keep the hope. And the spirit that is within you will remind you of Jesus' love and his words. And you keep going. There is no giving up for those of you that are in Christ Jesus. The last question is about the assurance of our destiny. How do we know? How do we really know that we're going to make it? God has a plan for your success. Let me conclude here with just a few crucial things that you need to know about the destiny that God has guaranteed for you that are in Christ. First of all, you have two intercessors. We've talked about one, the Holy Spirit, which groans on your behalf. But then in verse 34, we see Jesus himself intercedes for you. So that's why you're never alone. God is always praying to God for you. You want more? In Romans 8, 38 and 39, it says God's love for you is unstoppable, 
immeasurable and that nothing, nothing, seriously, nothing will ever separate you from his love. You want more? If someone or even yourself is against you, in verse 32 it says, remember, God already gave you his son and he will then graciously give you all things. You want more? If someone accuses you, you remind them that God chose you and that he has justified you. More. If someone condemns you, you preach the gospel to yourself. Jesus took all the condemnation. There's nothing left for you to have. And he's now alive and he's interceding right now for you. You want more? His spirit, God's spirit, bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And that's what the spirit does in the worst suffering and things that you never, ever wanted to walk through. God reminds you, I'm with you. You are my child. The Bible calls it the spirit of sonship. And because of that, we call God Father, Abba, Daddy. Since God has declared you forever to be his righteous, justified child, justified child, you are no longer trying to prove something to yourself or to others. The trial is over. God declared you righteous in his sight. And because of that, you are more than a conqueror, Romans 8 says. Now let me close if you could put the quote on there. This is a quote from John Piper. Because of all of this, because of all of this, you can live according to the gospel-confirming, freedom-preserving, conscience-cleansing, Christ-exalting truth that the devil wants very much for you not to understand or enjoy. So renounce him in all his ways and lay hold on your freedom, which is freedom indeed, and fight your sin in the Spirit like a victor not a victim. Amen.